On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We're going to start this morning with a very brief clip because this scene says something a little better than I can. So would uh, you hit the light here? Thank you very much. Oh, let me give you a little background to this. This is from Superman Returns. Uh, He's flying with Lois. Hears everything. No matter how much people will deny that they need a Savior, God hears their hearts. He knows their lives. So when we rebelled against Him, He saw a broken world. He heard the cries and He sent His Son to die for us, to put that world back together. And Christ died and he rose again. So it is no wonder that the first things he tells his disciples is, go tell people about this. So why don't we? I think one of the most common reasons is we're intimidated by our culture. We're intimidated because we feel, they feel, that we offend them by sharing Jesus Christ. And you know, there's, there's two reasons that people feel offended. One is the message. The other is the messenger. Yes, the message of the gospel can be offensive. It tells each one of us that we have sinned and that we need saviors. We can never change this message even if it does offend people because their salvation is much more important than their feelings at that moment. Paul captured it beautifully when he spoke to the Romans. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Speak the gospel. Do not be ashamed of it. But the second reason, maybe we should do something about. That is often people are offended by the messenger. They're offended by the way we bring the gospel to them. Because we get in the way of Jesus. And this book, Unchristian, and this was a survey of the younger generations, And they were asked about words. And they were asked, do these words depict uh, current Christianity? The everyday Christianity you see. And and these are some of the results. 86% said Christians are judgmental. 85% said they're hypocritical. 
78% said Christianity is old-fashioned. 72% that we are out of touch with reality. 70% that we're insensitive to others. And 68% were boring. This does not describe the gospel. The gospel is not judgmental. In fact, you tell me another religion or system of ethics that will look at a man who had committed such heinous crimes that the society itself judged him worthy of death. And then hear their God speak to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's grace. The judgment all fell on Jesus so we don't have to be judged. The gospel is not hypocritical. It's one of the reasons it offends. We, it is straight talk to us. And it is the same message to an immoral Samaritan woman as it is to a Jewish religious icon. The same words to the prostitute, the fisherman, and the prefect of Rome. The gospel is not old-fashioned. What it says to us about humanity are what our headlines scream today. What psychologists say are the core needs in our lives that need to be filled for us to be fully satisfied, fulfilled in life, are the same core needs that the gospel itself fills. The gospel is not out of touch with reality. It speaks truth. It sees reality differently because it sees a reality beyond what we can see, feel, taste. It speaks of an eternity. I believe it's we who look at these 70-odd years on earth as more important than eternity that are out of touch with reality. The gospel is not insensitive to others. It is a message that says God loves you no matter who who you are, come to him. Is Christianity boring? Ask the disciples. The adventures they lived as they lived out the gospel make the extreme sports of today seem boring. What they witnessed in transformed lives of people being lifted up out of the gutter or others taken down from their lofty perches. That's exciting stuff. You see, these descriptions are not descriptions of the gospel. Perhaps they're descriptions of us who bring the gospel. Jesus, in his first message to the disciples, speaks into our lives the truth that can change us and make us the messengers that Jesus Christ would have us to be. Let's pray. Our Father, may we open up our hearts to the wonders of your word this morning. Let the Spirit speak to us. Father, may we let down the barriers of self-defensiveness today. Open our lives to the way you might want to transform us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Now, I want to begin by speaking to those of you who may still be searching and wondering about Christianity. Maybe you've experienced some of us bumbling around as we share the gospel. I want to first say to you, if you are offended by the gospel, good. Because perhaps you are, you are hearing, not perhaps, you are hearing the truth of God speaking into your life. Let the Spirit take down the barriers hear the message of grace. If you have been offended by the messenger, that's me and us. I apologize. In his book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller uh, set up, he and a friend set up a confessional booth on their college campus, Reed College. Only it wasn't a confessional booth where people would come to confess their sins to Donald and his friend. It was a confessional booth where they confessed the sins of the church to those on the campus. Many ways, we at Westgate, we in Christendom, may need to set up a confessional booth in the way we've often presented the gospel if unchristian is the way we are being taken. But God has, Jesus Christ has words today. And in this passage, we're going to see for us, Christ gives us the keys to how to be transformed on the inside so we become the ambassadors he's always meant us to be, where we get ourselves out of the way and bring Christ to the forefront. So, as I did last week, if you want to underline in your Bible, there's going to be five phrases this week which will help you to see these more clearly. Uh, The first is, peace be with you. Uh, The second is, the disciples were overjoyed. Third, as the Father sent me. Fourth, receive the Spirit. And fifth, if you forgive anyone. Okay, so let's take these one at a time. The passage begins on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Now, we see in this passage that Jesus says this twice. He repeats it. That shows us that this phrase is filled with meaning. It's not simply a greeting that he's giving us. And the scenario is this. The disciples, fearing that the Jews would arrest them and do to them what they had done to Jesus, they are now cowering in a locked room. The risen Jesus seems to walk through the door, literally, and present himself to them. And he says, peace be with you. The eyes of the disciples widen. It's like they, they look like they've seen a ghost. Because that's exactly what they thought they saw. They thought, 
the ghost of Jesus is here. And of course, that frightened them all the more. So Jesus has to show, I'm not a ghost. Here, see the nail prints. See the hole in my side. In the parallel passage in Luke, Jesus says, let's have some fish together. I'll show you I'm not a ghost. Watch me eat the fish. And so once the disciples realize, this isn't a ghost. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. He's driving this home. For us to be the servants Christ wants us to be, we have to have the peace of Jesus Christ in our hearts. That's the one thing that will get us out of the way. Now, this peace he is talking about, he spoke about earlier. Uh, in fact, he spoke about it the night before he was crucified. He said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. You see what happens when this peace comes? It's a peace that is not like the peace of the world. The peace of the world is an absence of conflict. This peace is very different. It is a peace that is going to happen during conflict, during persecution. But it's a peace that's going to settle their hearts where they don't have to worry about it. It's a peace that's going to center them. Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5, Paul unpacks this piece a little more. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. What's he saying here? Is He's talking about what he spoke about earlier. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And on that death, he takes away the barrier that was between us and him, the judgment that was due our sin. He paid for it. And when we get that peace, what does it do? It recenters our lives around, what does it say here? Around the glory of God. See, we start getting out of the way and we're recentered around God's glory. That's what matters rather than ourselves. For if we have peace with God, our eternity is settled. We have a love relationship with God. We don't have to impress Him. We don't have to use evangelism and say, God, Look, I went out and did what you said. We don't have to pat ourselves on the back and say, God, look how many people I led to Christ. We don't need to do that because we know God accepts us as we are in this peace. It also allows us to accept ourselves. See, we're not only at war with God, we're at war with ourselves. Psychology has known this through its, from its inception. That's why they talk about defense mechanisms. When we deny, we did something we did, when we defend ourselves, when we project our wrongs onto others, when we explain our sins away, when we compare ourselves to others, saying, I know I did this, but I'm not as bad as others. All of these are defense mechanisms. They are defending, we defend ourselves through these. We, and by this defense, we don't have to face who we are in our sin. 
But if God accepts us in Jesus Christ, how can we not accept ourselves? And so we don't need to share the gospel to bolster our own self-image. We don't need to get our identity out of telling people about Jesus Christ. All of those self-centered motives are taken out of the way. And it leaves us simply to tell others because that's what Jesus has called us to do because it brings salvation. The second phrase, the disciples were overjoyed. Have you ever wondered what changed a group of disciples who at one moment are cowering in an upper room to a few days later standing in the center of the capital city where Jesus had just been crucified and not only talk glowingly about Jesus, but they point the finger at the audience and say, you crucified him. Because that's exactly what's happened in Scripture. We see in this passage, the disciples are cowering in the room. In the book of Acts at Pentecost, it says this. Peter stands up before them with all the disciples around him. Let's see if he'd preach this one. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Powerful words, especially coming from ones that were cowering. A change happened in one instant. And it's recorded in the next verse of Acts, as Peter continues, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that's what John says. After Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and sides, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw Jesus. The disciples were overjoyed at the resurrection. It changed everything. If we are afraid to tell others about Christ, it's because we don't really, really believe the resurrection. Oh, we'll say it in our confessions of faith. We'll put it into our gospel message. But do we believe, like the disciples did, that Christ was raised from the dead? Does that thought just begin to transform our emotions and bring a joy like Easter morning? I don't know why we leave Easter morning joy on Easter morning. Why have we not taken the resurrection with us? But we might respond and say, well, it's different. I mean, they had Jesus showing his hands, showing his side. If I had that, I would have that same joy. I'd have that same confidence. But we can. Because Thomas felt that way, right? Thomas said he wasn't there. So he did the disciples, I'm not going to believe he's raised until I can put my fingers in his holes. 
And so Jesus, a week later, shows himself to Thomas, but what does he say to Thomas? He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what he's saying here is, Thomas, you should have believed the testimony of those who saw me. You don't need to see the risen Christ to have the same kind of faith as those who did see him. Because the testimony of those should be enough. In every corner of life, we believe the testimony of others. We write our history books because we're rebuilding them on the fact we've received testimony of those who were there. We make judgments in court and out of court based on evidence given by those who testify to what they saw. We do it in every corner of life. The question isn't can we trust someone's testimony as much as the seeing it ourselves. The answer is yes, we can. The question really is, are those who say it trustworthy? Can we trust the disciples that this really happened and that they didn't just make up a story so they could promote a new religion? We know they didn't, not by their words, but by their lives. Every one of the disciples, uh, of the 11 disciples, 10 were executed and martyred. The other was banished. Now, would disciples make up a new religion, make up a message that was counterculture in the first place, and then die for that lie? Many people have died for a lie, but nobody dies knowing it's a lie. We might die for things that are not true, but we believe they're true. What skeptics are asking us to believe is that the disciples made up a story, willingly were tortured and persecuted, and not one of them responded with, wait, okay, I admit we made it up. They went to their deaths proclaiming the resurrection of Christ because they believed it to be true and they were there to see that it was true. We need to let the peace of God settle into our hearts to get us out of the way. We need to let the joy of the resurrection capture our hearts so we are willing to face persecution because we have eternity already settled. Because we know that these words are true. They are historical. So we move on to our third phrase. As the Father sent me. Again, Jesus said in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is Jesus' commission as stated in John. But when we go to the other Gospels, we see it's stated in a different way. In Matthew, Jesus says, go make disciples. In Luke, it says, you be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But here John puts it differently. He sends them out by saying, 
As the Father sent me, so I send you. And what he does is he gives us the real heart that we should have as we go out into the world. It's the same heart that Jesus has. You see, John is written against the backdrop of the Trinity. It's a beautiful backdrop to everything that John talks about. And so it's the backdrop to this passage. And John has unpacked for us the beauty and splendor of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And he speaks about an eternal love relationship where they mutually glorify each other. It's the perfect relationship. They don't need any love from anybody. They don't need the glory from anybody because they have it from themselves. And so we can deduce from this picture in John 17 that the reason God creates the world is not to get love and glory, but to include others in this circle of the Trinity, in the relationships within them. So he creates us for a love relationship with him. But humanity pushed God back out of the way and said, I will seek my own way without you. I don't need your love, for I will seek love in my world. And with that, the world was broken, and each one of us was broken, and our lives are never filled by the on and off again love relationships we have in this world. We often can't even love ourselves. For on one hand, we, 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 we lift ourselves up as wonderful. The other, next day we're cursing ourselves for how bad we are. And so God wants to break in again. And even though we have left God, he never left us. Even when we didn't care about him, he never ceased caring about us. So John 3 tells us, God so loved the world that he sent his son into this world so that we wouldn't perish, but we would have eternal life, which is a love relationship with the Lord. And Jesus says, do you have that picture? Do you understand God's love for the world that he sent me? And you know what? I have the same love for the world the Father has. Now, I am sending you in the same way. Go into the world because I love the world. So much I gave my life for it. Go into the world because you have my love for the world in you. Going into the world shouldn't merely be obeying a command. It should be coming out of a heart touched and reached by the love of Christ and brought into union with that love so that we flow into the world. You know, we often talk about certain spiritual truths and we say, you know, we've got to get that into our DNA. And I said that once to CJ, and, you know, being the pharmacist, he says, well, that's really not the case. It's the fact that we as Christians already have that in our DNA. We simply need the gene turned on. And what this is saying, if we are the, a new creation in Jesus Christ, Peter says we have the divine nature, we have the, the nature of God, we have the DNA, Christ's DNA, of love for the world in us. It's there. We have to turn it off. How do we turn it back on? 
It's getting back into the gospel and realizing his love for us, letting that wash over us. So then we realize, let's expand the circle. God, this is great with you. I want to expand the circle like you did. Include others. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this passage has caused confusion in me, and I think a lot of other people. Because we we see in this scene in the upper room, the night Jesus is raised, he breathes the Holy Spirit on the disciples. So it seems like they got the Holy Spirit, and yet in Luke... We see the Holy Spirit, they're supposed to stay in the upper room for a number of days till the Holy Spirit comes on them. So is this right? Is this a contradiction? What's going on here? It's the same truth. The Holy Spirit, as the parallel passage, there's a parallel passage in Luke 24, in which the same thing, Jesus says, peace. He points his, to the holes in his hands. He eats the fish. And then he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So wait. Wait. I want you to be my witnesses, but wait until the Spirit comes to you. So what's John doing here? John is symbolically showing the promise that we will receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same passage as Luke, except John, because he has that Trinitarian backdrop, and because he, throughout his book, he is showing that Christ is bringing a new creation. We talked about that last week. We saw that. But John says Christ is bringing a new creation, so he often shows it against what Jesus does as a fulfillment of the old creation. How did God create, originally create Adam? He took the dust of the earth and he breathed his spirit into them, into Adam. John is giving the same picture in the new creation. For us to be the new creation, to be his ambassadors, his witnesses, he breathes on them in anticipation of the promised Holy Spirit coming upon them. Second reason he uses this terminology is because as he sends them, he wants them to realize very clearly, you need the Holy Spirit to be my sent one. In Acts The disciples wait in the upper room together for 10 days till the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and wow, gangbusters out into the world. You know, one of the reasons we are poor witnesses is we're not going out in the Holy Spirit. We've got to go out in the Holy Spirit. You see, We don't know the dynamics of what's going on inside of someone's life. We don't know what their pains and sorrows are, the scripture that might speak to them and cut between their defenses, but the Holy Spirit does. 
We often don't have the courage and boldness to speak. The Apostle Paul himself asked the Ephesians, please pray for my boldness. But the Holy Spirit does. We can't make blind people see spiritual truth, but the Holy Spirit can. We cannot convict people of the fact that they're sinners, that there is a judgment, that there is righteousness that is going to be God's righteousness that's going to be satisfied through Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit can. We need to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I don't have time to share it this morning, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we abide in the love of Jesus Christ. It's another way of sending when we get ourselves into the wonderful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are saturated with those, that truth, it frees the Holy Spirit to live through us. And so we come to the fifth statement. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right. This has confused a lot of people as well. (laughs) Because as we read this, it sounds like God has just given us divine power to forgive or to not forgive. In that God is going to do what we deem here on earth. Uh, That's not what he means here. In fact, the, the second part of this, it says we forgive, if we forgive, The second part is in the perfect tense. It speaks about something that has already happened. So the New American Standard, I think, translates it properly. If we forgive the sins of anyone, they have been forgiven. See, it is God's forgiveness that precedes our forgiveness, not the other way around. And so what God is doing in this passage is he is giving us the authority Authority to recognize and to pronounce a person is forgiven or not forgiven. Now, we need this authority to go speak the gospel into the world. You know, if you've ever shared the gospel, you say, you have to believe in Jesus. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. So, do you think I'm under the judgment of God? And I say, yes. And the person goes, well, who do you think you are? You think you can forgive me? You think you have the power? You're standing in the place of God? Who do you think you are? They go, yeah, who am I? Who am I to say you're not forgiven? Oh, you received Jesus, you are forgiven. This passage gives us that authority. It says, you believers who have the Holy Spirit, who takes the truth in the word of God, are able to recognize And therefore able to pronounce, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are under judgment. We can pronounce to those who do accept Jesus Christ, you are forgiven by God. In these past verses, Jesus has given us all that we need to be the ambassadors he wants us to be. You know, at the beginning of this book, 
John. Jesus goes to a number of his disciples, and we see the first interaction with those disciples. And in every case, Jesus speaks into the deepest need of their life and shows that he fulfills it and satisfies the deepest needs. In two cases, Philip and Andrew, as soon as they have this interaction with Jesus, they run to the closest person in their lives and say, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ. Wow. See, there were two things that these people had that made them immediately turn around and share the gospel. One was they were ecstatic about Jesus Christ. And they loved one, someone so much they could not not tell him. Are those qualities in our lives? Are we so ecstatic about Jesus Christ because we have experienced the peace with God, the peace with ourselves, that we are so filled? It's like we have $10 billion. We don't need any more uh, by using our evangelism to build a sense of self-righteousness or to impress Christians. We have all we need. We have $10 billion in the gospel. Let's give some away. Have we been that filled? This passage says, be filled with the peace of God, receive the joy of the resurrection, receive the Spirit. And then the second do you love someone so much you can not help but to tell them? And Jesus says, it's in your DNA. Turn it on with the gospel. And then we will go. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. May we hear the cries of the world around us. Whether or not people deny their need for Jesus Christ, the inner parts of their being, they can suppress it, but it's there. Lord, let us feel that and then realize that we have the light they're looking for in the message of Christ.